Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quaid, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we have a very special guest. He is an expert on the medicinal and psychoactive plants of the Amazonian rainforest. Dr. Glenn Shepard is an ethnobotanist, medical anthropologist, and filmmaker who has worked with diverse indigenous peoples of Latin America, especially in Amazonia. He earned his undergraduate degree at Princeton and his doctorate in medical anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. And he's carried out research and published widely on medicinal plants, shamanism, traditional ecological knowledge, and indigenous uses of digital media, while also engaging in applied projects that involve sustainable resource management, community health, and sanitation and film and video training. His work in the Amazon has been featured in a number of different news outlets, including stories in National Geographic, The New Yorker, and The Financial Times. And he's also participated in the production of several films, including the Emmy award-winning documentary, Spirits of the Rainforest. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Glenn. It's great to see you. It is a really an honor to be on your podcast. I love your podcast, and I love what you're doing for the field by getting the word out. Awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because um, I really admire the work that you do on the ground in the Amazon, working in such close collaboration with local communities and indigenous peoples. Um, and I thought maybe we could start with a bit of a background and story of how you really got into this field. I know that plants have played a really important role, not only in your field of work, but also in your personal life. And this really became evident as I read a recent poem that you published in Sapiens about your son's treatment of a rare, um, a rare condition using drugs derived from medicinal plants and from ethnobotany. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, uh, I got into ethnobotany a long time ago. You know, mm -hmm. I was an undergraduate, and I was, I was, I was, I loved languages. I just loved foreign languages. I loved like how can how many languages can I learn? But I was a pre-med student and I was like, how can I combine pre-med and languages and travel? And I found, you know, ethnobotany, medical anthropology was this way of of sort of combining these two things. And so uh, I actually got to the Amazon by a very circuitous route. I, I started out going to Jordan, to the to the deserts of of Jordan, working with Bedouin. I was studying Arabic. Uh, you know, of course, the the the, the Arabic and Persian peoples uh, were very important. You know, during the Middle Ages, it was the Arabic and Persian scholars who carried on Greek medicine from Galen and so on. In, in and so most of our medical knowledge from the West came through Arabic and Persian sources. And so, my my journey into ethnobotany and medical anthropology actually started through the Middle East, studying Arabic and a little bit of Persian, and studying these these. Arabic herbals, and so I, I uh, one of my TAs for my Arabic class had lived with Jordanian Bedouin. He was a linguist, and he was studying wow. the wow. the oral literature of these Jordanian Bedouins. So, as an undergraduate, when I was when I was like 19 years old, I got together some grant money and went off to the middle of the desert in Jordan, on the border with Iraq. In 19, this was 1985, on the border with Iraq, and uh, and hung out with this Bedouin tribe. And studied their medicinal plants, and uh, and but during that trip, I was writing letters. I had this very good friend uh, at, at Princeton um, who was an ecologist. I was a medical anthropologist, uh, botanist. He was an ecologist, and so I was writing him letters. And he, I wrote these letters from the 
from the desert, you know, from the, the, the desert. And he said, oh, you wrote such wonderful letters. I'm off to Peru to do my senior research study. So I owe you. So, so mm -hmm. when I got back from Jordan, I started getting these letters from him. He says, I won't see you. I'm going to the, you're going to be back from Jordan. I'm headed off to Peru, but I owe you because you wrote some wonderful letters. So he started writing me these letters. And so I started getting these letters about the, the Amazon rainforest and the cloud forest and the monkey, the howler monkeys and the Machiginga Indians. I said, that sounds really cool. So I went to the library and looked up Machiginga Indians and I found this like old 1924, uh, this 1924 vocabulary grammar book and started studying the language, reading what I could. And when they got back from the expedition, I went to his professor and said, hey, I've never been to Peru before, but I just got back. I've done ethnobotany in Jordan. Would you take me to Peru? And they said, sure. So I went straight <laughs> from the deserts of Jordan to the rainforests of Peru. But when I, when I first set foot in the Amazon, when I set, set foot in that first village, I go, this is it. I, I felt like I was, most people, the Amazon, like, oh, bugs and, and scary spiders and snakes. And I was ready for that. But when I stepped off the boat and went to my first village, I felt like, I feel like I'm home. This is like, this is it. So I never, I never went back to the deserts and just started doing ethnobotany in the Amazon. Wow. And, and I ended up, you know, I ended up marrying a Brazilian and having three children. I moved to Brazil, got a job in Brazil, had three children in Brazil. And then, um, and then in 2006, my youngest son, he was a year and a half old. I got back from an expedition on the upper Rio Negro. And when I left, he was fine. And when I got back, he had this lump, just the size of an olive right behind his ear. I said, that is weird. And so I called my dad as a doctor and said, what does this look like? He says, get an x-ray. And we got an x-ray and my son had these, this a hole the size of a quarter in his skull. Oh my and gosh. Yeah, it was it was really scary. And we went to the doctor in house, and the doctor looked at it and said, I don't know what this is, but it could be really bad. He said he his initial diagnosis was this thing called rhabdomyosarcoma, which is a fatal, like a fatal uh, bone cancer. And and we got out of it like the next day we were on a plane to to Campinas, Brazil, where there's a where's the it's it's the it's pretty much the best children's cancer hospital in South America called the Boldrini Children's Center. And we got there and, you know, the first couple weeks there when we were getting biopsies and waiting for a diagnosis and there's all these kids from all over Brazil and Latin America who are going through these, you know, these terrible, you know, situations and treatments. And so in those first couple weeks before we got, it, it, he ended up having something not cancer, but it's something that they don't really know. It's called, it's called histiocytosis. It's an immune system uh, disorder where the immune system attacks the body. And so it, it was once considered to be a kind of, of um, lymphoma and then, then they changed it. So it's a really mysterious disease. It's, it's, like, um, it's like 400 times more rare than leukemia. It's very, very rare. But, um, and, and, and they, 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 ended, ended, they, they ended up putting them on an experimental protocol, which involved emblastine, which mm. is of course, the miracle, the miraculous cancer-treating drug that was first derived from the from the Madagascar periwinkle, the rosy periwinkle of Madagascar, and so in those first weeks, as we were, you know, waiting for diagnoses and, and getting on the experimental protocol, I, um, I I've always written since I was a kid, poetry and short stories, and it was just this, you know. You, one day you're fine, you got a healthy baby, and the next day you're in a children's cancer clinic, and with the diagnosis, he's got a fatal brain tumor, he'll be dead in six months. That was the initial diagnosis wow. we had. 
So you suddenly your all your life's priorities just get reshuffled, and you know what's important is here and now, and finding out what he's got and getting him his treatment as fast as possible and preparing yourself for what could be a very bad diagnosis. And in that sort of, that altered state of hope and despair, I wrote this poem. I, you know, as an undergrad, I read the work of this poet, Paul Celan, who was this Jewish Romanian poet who wrote in German and his parents were, were murdered by the Nazis in the Holocaust. He survived a concentration camp and came out of it with this Un, it's this incredible, it's very hard to translate. It's, you know, you sort of have to read it in German. It, it has been translated by one, there's a wonderful French translator, Pierre Jury, who translates him into English. But anyway, Paul Salon's poetry has a way of, of sort of dealing with trauma through these sort of observations of objects. It's like you're, the trauma's there, you can't really look at it straight on, so you look at the objects that surround it. And I'll never forget the moment I was, there's a chapel in this in this hospital where people go you know as parents get when parents get bad news they obviously turn towards religion and and i was sitting in this chapel and there's these people who were just you could tell they were just desperately you know they were, they were, their children had bad diagnosis and there were just a few people in the chapel singing sort of desperately singing ha hallelujah ha hallelujah and i remembered a line from from salon where he's talking about remembering the you know before the it's the poem that I'm thinking about. It, it, it's a poem called Stretto in English. It's called it's called Engführung in in German. It's it's a it's a it's a, it's a kind of fugue. It's like a fugue. It's a kind of fugue. It's one of the categories of musical fugues. Anyway, he's he's sort of meditating on this nightmarish landscape, which one assumes is the landscape of of a concentration camp, and he remembers the hymns that were sung by a choir of of you know, in, 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 you know, the Jewish hymns sung at holidays and it's Ho, Hosanna. And you get the sense of almost like, it sounds like almost like laughter, like maybe God is laughing at us or something like that. That's the sense it gave me. And, and as, as I listened to these parents with their children in the cancer clinic singing, hallelujah, hallelujah, I remembered that line of poetry from, from Ceylon. And, and I suddenly started writing down little fragments and I ended up writing this poem, you know, 2007, 2006, 2007, called Unlikely Blessings. And it sort of talks, it, it, it was my way of dealing with this experience. And then um, and then I, I never really published it. I, I sort of had it, you know, I, I sent it out a couple places, never got it published. And then finally, oh, Sapiens, this wonderful, uh, uh, this wonderful online magazine of anthropology funded by the Winter Wren Foundation, they had a poetry comp competition last year and I won the poetry competition. And they said, we're having an open poetry submission from now on. We're going to make it a regular part. So please submit your poem. So I submitted this poem and it got selected for publication in the latest, on the latest uh, issue of Sapiens. That's great. And so folks, you can find this um, online in Sapiens and it's, it's a lovely read. And, and the good news is your son made a full recovery it as well. Recovered. He yeah. was treated in blastine and he had a, you know, he, he had a first round of six months and it went away completely within days. But then when we put when we pulled it off, it was back within the, the the holes in his skull and on his vertebra and on his arm was back and like um, within a period of three two or three months it was back and so we had to do another longer round. Um, but returning to the vinblastine, higher doses and some other medication alongside it, and then rather than doing the short six month treatment, he did like a three year treatment. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and with that, he's never he's never had it again, and he recovered. And so the poem mentions uh, the the caustic milk of the periwinkle, 
where this idea that medicines like what we work with in ethobotany, they many of these plants are very toxic. Mm-hmm. And so part of the part of the art of healing is finding the right amount of toxin to to kill the, me- the illness that's harming you without killing yourself. And so obviously cancer therapy is is very aggressive therapy that takes advantage of these toxic substances, many of them plants, taxol from mm-hmm. the from the new and and then blasting from from the uh, the rose periwinkle that takes advantage of the causticity in the plants to kill certain cells. And if you if you were to give more of it, it would probably it would definitely kill us. But you know, you yeah. find the right right the, like Paracelsus. The the the, the 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 it's all about everything's toxic. It's just a matter of dosage. Dose and intent. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the rosy periwinkle story is fascinating. It, it's from. Um, Catharanthus roseus is the scientific name. It's in the Apocynaceae families, you know, which has that milky latex. And um, it's such an interesting story. As a plant, it has such a fascinating history. You know, the French thought of it as kind of a witch's plant or kind of witchy magical plant. And you see these echoes of, of magic and superstition intertwined with religion and medicine through so many different cultures and just you talking about the singing and how this all ties together um do you do you see parallels of of these kind of complex interplays between medicine and faith and poison and plants in your studies and and work with um local people in amazonia well absolutely i mean um amazonian medicine there's 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 sort of a there's a false uh, equivalence. People think that shamans, we talk about shamans, are the plant knowers, and they are. But in in Amazonian medicine, many Amazonian peoples, there's sort of two groups of medicine. There's shamanism, which is which is the specialty of certain healers with esoteric knowledge who often use psychoactive plants um, to treat psychoactive plants and singing together mm-hmm. to treat. And, but that's more of a, it's more of a specialty knowledge. And then the medicinal plants, at least in the cultures that I've worked with, is a more democratic kind of knowledge. And the, the two systems interact to some extent, but they're somewhat independent. And so medicinal plant knowledge tends to be fairly democratic. Like there's a certain set of plants that many women in the tribe will know, and there's a certain set of plants that many men in the tribe will know, but there's only a few people who are, who are, who are respected as shamans who use but they still use plants. They just use plants. They use, they'll use plants, they'll use psychoactive plants to enter into these trance states so they can mm-hmm. see the spirit world and see the illnesses. And then, and they'll call on plant spirits more than using the physical plants to heal people. Sometimes they combine them, but, but you get this combination of, of the, the physiological effects of these strongly, these powerful, you know, psychoactive plants with the singing. And, and when you, you know, at least among the Machiginga people where I've worked the most, when the shaman takes ayahuasca and other psychoactive plants, they do it in complete darkness. Mm-hmm. So that, so the idea is that you can only by, only by getting rid of all artificial light, can you see the true nature of things behind the distractions of daily life. And so because it's all in the dark, their main way of, of guiding the ritual is through these songs. And they're just these incredibly beautiful songs that will, will that they're songs that will, 
that will call the spirits and that they will guide if the person has lost their soul or if, the child, if a child has lost their soul, the songs will call the soul back and, um, and the songs will literally change. It's, it's almost like the songs are the control panels of the spaceship. The songs will, you know, the songs will guide the experience. And, and, and so it's this incredible mixture of plants and songs and, uh, and spirituality, which I think, I think, you know, the ayahuasca, the ayahuasca shamanism is, it's, it's not, it's no, it's no accident that it's become famous all over the world because there's something about it that, that, that reaches people across cultures, the, the healing powers of this plant combined with, with ritual and song. That's great. And I know that a few years ago, there was a National Geographic story about a, an indigenous friend of yours that um, this story I, covered use of a psychoactive and, and, and turning into a jaguar as part of hunting medicine. Was this involving ayahuasca as well, or was it a different psychoactive? This is a different psychoactive plant from a different family. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a plant called Brunfelsia. Uh -huh. um, Brunfelsia is it's you know it's the same family as belladonna and and datura mm -hmm. uh, and tobacco you know that the the mm -hmm. tomato family which is full of lots of toxic and psychoactive properties and Brunfelsia is a plant that has some of the same alkaloids atropine scopolamine some of the same alkaloids that are found in belladonna and in datura mm -hmm. um, and and so the the Machiginga people of Peru use they have they they recognize six or seven different folk species um and it's and it's uh it's brunfelsia grandifolia and there's there's grandiflora and there's other species of brunfelsia it's a beautiful it's a it's a beautiful plant with a the flower looks a little bit like a petunia it's just very flat a lot of the you know the you think of the trumpet like with the you know the datura and brugmansia Brun, these trumpet these big yeah these trumpet ones trumpet mm -hmm. and the um the uh, Brunfelsi has this flat flower, sort of like a, a petunia, you know, that flat sort of mm. looking flower. And they're beautiful purple and, 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 and purple and white flowers. And, um, and so the Machiginga, they recognize six or six, five or six different folk varieties um, that are used for hunting. And the idea is the hunter, the, the hunter when he's a young man, will, will scrape the bark and boil it and then drink a large dose of this. And in addition to the psychoactive effects, it's a visionary plant, but it causes tingling sensation like pins and needles in your fingers, like a, like a, like a, you know, like pin cushions in your fingers mm -hmm. and toes. It hurts. You can't walk when you take it. You can't walk because wow. it, it's like your fingers are tingling. And they, I've, I've tried it. I mean, it, they gave me a small dose and it definitely gives you a weird kind of tingly sensation. Mm -hmm. And they say that sensation is the spirit of the harpy eagle that's penetrating your body. And the harpy eagle, of course, is a great hunter with great vision. And so they say the harpy eagle spirit penetrates your body and makes you able to shoot, you know, shoot an arrow straight and far. And so there's 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 one species that's called uh, the spider the, the monkey the spider monkey's root. And there's the fish plant. There, each each of these folk species is good for you know a different class of animals. But there's one species. It's 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 also a Brunfelsi. It's a different species that they call Kawinidi. And they say that kawinidi is also a great hunting plant, but it's too good. It's too mm. strong. Whereas the other, the other species infuse you with the spirit of the harpy eagle, which is a great hunter, um, but not really a threat to humans. The kawinidi will infuse you with the spirit of the jaguar. And so you become a great hunter, but as time goes on, you will 
you will turn into a jaguar and kill your own, kill your, you, you'll start seeing your own family members as animals to be hunted. And the, the, the jaguar sees, you know, the jaguar sees human beings as boar or tapers to be eaten. And so the, the, the person who uses this other species of, of, uh, of, of, of becomes such a great hunter that he turns into a jaguar and kills his own, his own, um, his own family. And so, um, there's this old, old friend of mine, uh, in, in the, I refer to him as Pasquale in, in, my, in my writing. And he's this old, just wonderful old man, had the best, best pineapples I've ever had in my life. He was just incredible. <laughs> he made sweet, sweet pineapples. And every time I'd show up in the village, he'd show up with five or six of the best pineapples. And we became friends over the years, and he was a great singer. Not so much a medicinal plant user, but he knew a lot about songs and love songs and, you know, love, love, love magic through singing. And then when I go back and go visit him, he goes, I say, how are you doing? He says, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing well. I'm, uh, I'm turning into a jaguar. I go, what? He goes, yep. When I was young, they told me this plant's good to be a hunter. And, and, and I tried it, and I became a great hunter. But they didn't warn me about the side effect of that, that you'll turn into a jaguar. And here I am. I'm turning old. And every time I go to sleep, I growl. And I, I, I have these dreams at night, these weird dreams. And there's a jaguar that's walking around the village killing chickens. I'm afraid he's going to kill one of my grandsons. And he, and everyone in the village knew he's turning into a jaguar. And so the Machinga have this, I don't want to call it a belief, it's, it's an understanding of the world in which, you know, when old people get past a certain phase of senility, you know, we say that old people get Alzheimer's and senile. The Machinga say they turn into jaguars. And they will, and, and, and the, the interesting thing is that, is that it doesn't, let's put it this way, as long as there's no jaguar in the village, it's all okay. So it's only when the jaguar shows up that they say, oh, that is that old person turning into a jaguar. And at first it confused me because you think, you know, the jaguar is the most powerful predator in the forest. It's, you know, it's the biggest, it's the biggest, most powerful predator in the Amazon. So why do they associate old people with jaguars? It makes no sense. And so as I, you know, and but it happened over and, and it was starting to happen more and more frequently. There was, you know, there'd be an old person. I remember one time I was, I was, I arrived in the village kind of late at night and they said, stop by when you get, when you, we got some masato, some, some maniac beer, come down and visit us. They were, they were about 40 minutes away and we got in late. And so I got my flashlight and walked through the forest 40 minutes and got there and they go, they said, what are you doing here? I said, well, you told me to come by and visit. So like, Didn't you see Margarita? Cause I, when I, when I met them, I, I met them on the way up there, right? Stop. Their settlement was so on the way up. I stopped there. And said, oh yeah, I saw Margaret. Oh yeah, poor Margaret. She's getting really old. Yeah, yeah, she was she was such a wonderful old lady, but now she's she's getting old and senile. And then I, I continued past the, this one settlement up the river, got off the boat, and walked back to that same settlement. You know, after dark. And he said, Are you crazy? What are you doing here? I said, Well, you told me to come drink masata with you. You know, drink maniac beer. He says, Didn't you tell us about Margarita? I said, Yeah. And, he said, and they said, And? Like, so they they thought Margarita was the jaguar that could hunt you. And wow. he said, and I said, what do you mean, Andor? Well, there's a jaguar on this path. Margarita's a jaguar. It's, it made no sense. And and then and then I'll never forget there was there was a there was a, a person, a, a very close friend of mine, who died this really awful death. And they assumed that he had turned into a jaguar. Anyone who had old people or people who die like a wasting death, like when you when your body gets thin, they, they say that the person stops eating human food because at night they're 
they become a jaguar and they're eating jaguar food. And so anyone who dies like with a wasting illness, either old age or mm-hmm. I think this friend of mine may have had liver cancer or something. He, he died this horrible sort of wasting death. People who die that kind of death, they say they turn into jaguars. And so this very dear friend of mine died. And then there was, ja- there was, there was a jaguar that was attacking dogs and chickens and people. And they killed it. And they, they, they showed it to me where they, they killed it out in a, in a garden area. And they burnt it so that it wouldn't come back. But they showed it to me, and it was this huge skull, this gigantic skull, and all the teeth were rotten in the jaguar. And suddenly it hit me. The jaguars that come to the village are old jaguars who Uh, can't hunt anymore. Now, say, jaguars that are normal jaguars live off in the forest and hunt peccaries. It's the human jaguars that come to the villages, and, and, and they... They they kill chickens and dogs and event, and sometimes can kill people, and it's so it's the it's the old jaguars that have broken teeth that there are sick jaguars that come to the villages and there's it's as though they, I mean they didn't explain it to me this way it's almost like there's an unconscious association between the old person who can no longer take care of themselves and the old jaguar and in, in the old days before there was Western medical care and Christian missionaries. The old people in the Machinga villages, when they would get when they would get old and become a burden to their family, they would just walk off into the forest and vanish. And they say they walk off in the forest and they went to the sky. They became shamans. They 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 walk in the forest and they vanish. You never find bones. You never find anything. They would just mm-hmm. go into the sky. But now old people, because of missionaries and Western medicine, they sort of they keep them alive with antibiotics and so on. And they sort of they get old and they don't have this option of just walking into the forest and vanishing. And so these are the people, and with, basically there's, a, there's, a, there's an epidemic of jaguar transformation in these villages. And, and there's all of these, but the thing is, you have to have a jaguar there. So, you know, I explained to this, my friend Eduardo Cohn, who's written a wonderful book called How Forests Think, about, about thinking about human-animal, human-nature relationships in, in a more comprehensive way. And he said, oh, this, this idea that the old jaguars, old people, you know, psychoactive plants transforming, it's too mechanistic. It's too deterministic. It's too reductionist. And I said, well, I would agree with you, but it's the jaguar that takes the first step. Until a jaguar sets foot in that village, this belief doesn't get activated. So it's really, it's really the presence of a jaguar in the village that activates this sort of set of beliefs and practices, which revolves around old age and dying practices and the use of these psychoactive plants. Yeah, this this idea of of human transformation into different creatures, it's it's so fascinating. When I when I was in um, the Peruvian Amazon, I also heard many stories about the transformation of the pink river dolphins. And I don't know if the Machinga people have pink river dolphins nearby. Do, are there any stories about those transformations? Because it's more about lovers and unexplained babies. And how well, did this I, girl become I, pregnant all of a sudden? What well, was the pink river dolphin transformed, you know, and, and took her to the river and got her pregnant and brought her back to the village? Yeah, well, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's the Machinga are up on the upper Amazon. So they don't, there's not a lot of pink, well, the, where I worked in the Manu River, there are no pink dolphins because of okay. the because okay. of the rapids in Bolivia. They don't go up that far. But in okay. the in the Urubamba River, you occasionally get the pink dolphins. But down towards the Iquitos region, where you probably were, Pucalpa, Iquitos, this this and it's in Brazil too. This legend of the of the dolphin that transforms in the in the people. Now, this is part of a generalized a generalized view of nature. 
um, in Amazon, in which, you know, in, in our Western sort of Judeo-Christian tradition, man is the ultimate creation, and God sort of gave the earth and all its beasts and creatures for man to dominate over. And so man, and even when you think about the, our evolutionary stories, like, oh, man evolved from the the apes and then the higher apes, quote unquote, and then man mm -hmm. is like the, humankind top, is the peak. The top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in the Machiginga and many Amazon, in fact, it's almost, it's sort of the universal belief across the Amazon. It's the other way around. Everything was human. All animals were humans. All animals, stars, um, uh, planets, some plants, not all plants, but some plants were human, but all the animals were human in the past. And, and the myths, the Amazonian myths, a lot of the body of myths of Amazon peoples is, is how the plants and animals, mostly animals, got to be the way they are. And they, they were humans, and then they did something they, either, they did something wrong or they made somebody mad or they had some quirk and that quirk then becomes why they transformed into whatever animal they are. So, but everything underneath is humans. And so this is why humans and animals can transform into each other so easily because they're, they're all humans. All, all, all animals are humans. And, and, and the idea is that there's sort of a, there's a, there's a, there's a anthropological theory by Eduardo Viveiros de Castro, a, a Brazilian anthropologist called perspectivism. And the idea is, perspectivism is this, like I was talking about the jaguars. So a jaguar looks at a human being and doesn't see a human being. A jaguar, a jaguar looks at itself in the mirror and sees a human being. And he looks at a person, a human being, one of us, and sees a taper or a, or a peccary, something to be hunted. Now a peccary, because everything was human, everything is human, remains human. A peccary looks at a human hunter. A peccary looks at itself in the mirror and sees a person. When a peccary looks at a person, a hunter, the peccary sees a jaguar. Mm -hmm. so, and so the idea is that the body that you inhabit, every animal looks at itself as being, every animal and humans and stars and planets, they all look at themselves as being humans. And everything, all the other creatures, the other beings that surround them, the body that they assume is determined by their perspective in sort of the, 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 the chain of predation. And so predators see themselves as humans hunting, hunting peccary and, and taper, whereas those who are being predated see themselves as humans and see the predators being a jaguar. And so there's this underlying, um, it's the underlying sort of cosmological principle in the Amazon mm -hmm. is that everything is human. And everything, all the animals can turn into human. They are humans, and they can take on a human form. And so the, the um, you know, the, the pink dolphin um, belief is part of that generalized view that all the animals in the forest were once humans, and in certain conditions, they can transform into humans. And, you know, it, it's, it makes for a great story, but it's also a good way to explain away, an, you know, an adolescent daughter who suddenly gets pregnant and no one wants to take over the take take on responsibility although the, the dolphin got me but that yeah. it's very complicated that belief but it, yeah. it's part of this wider and and that's a that's an element of the amazonian cosmology that is that has sort of penetrated into non-indigenous cultures in brazil and peru mm -hmm. i think i think the thing that really comes out for me is how everything is so intricately intertwined um both in the cosmology but also in the biology um, we recently interviewed uh, Merlin Sheldrake 
on his book called Entangled Life, which just is an eye-opening exploration of the fungal world that surrounds us. And um, I know you've also done some work with fungi. Um, in particular, there's a psychoactive fungus. Can you tell us a bit about that? I think it's called Balancia. Balancia, yeah, Cyperi. Uh, yeah, Mel Mel Merlin is wonderful. I, I loved his book, and I've 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 met him through virtual means a couple times. We had some great mm -hmm. conversations. Because of this this idea of the fungal endophytes, and um, in in the Amazon, there's a plant. Um, it's called they call them piri piri in Peru. In Brazil, they call it piripioca. And it is um, it is in English we call it sedge or nutgrass. Mm -hmm. um, and they're these little. It's in the it's in the it's in the papyrus family, Cyperaceae, which is the family of papyrus, which is. Elsewhere in the world, it's probably the least used medicinal plant in the world. I mean, the, the Cyperaceae are very, very underused in terms of medicinal plant uses. They're used for paper and so on, but but nowhere else in the world are they used medicinally because they don't have they don't they don't. It's not a family that tends to have a lot of alkaloids and secondary plant compounds. Mm -hmm. And here in the Amazon, it is probably the most widely used medicinal plant across the Amazon basin, piripedes and pupiocas. It's used everywhere. All the, Almost every indigenous group that I've seen has had these cultivated, they use these cultivated varieties of, of the mm. sedges. And it's a very strange thing because you think, well, for the longest time, ethnobotanists assumed this was just like magic. Oh, it's just magic. It's just ritual because they'll, they'll use, there's, there's dozens and dozens of varieties of, of sedges. And they'll, you know, they'll use one for the woman to have to not have any more babies, to have lots of babies. There's one to cure snake bite. There's one to cure headache. There's one to cure um, uh, arrow wounds. There's one to make you a good singer. There's one to make you um, a good hunter. There's one to, if, if, if spouses are fighting, you give them, and it, it calms down their fighting. There's one to make, a, a, make you, people who are bad drunks, you give it to them and they stop being bad drunks. There's even one they say that back in the, in the 1980s, when there was the Shining Path terrorists in Peru, and there was lots of military checkpoints, there was one sedge variety that you rub on your hand. They call it Sorado Benki, so, soldier, soldier sedge. So you rub it on your body, on your face, and you go through the military checkpoints, and they don't look in your bags. They don't hassle you. Huh. And so, you know, this sounds like your classic sort of placebo effect uh, ritual charm. And uh, and ethnobotanists sort of wrote these things off for, for many years. So like, how can one basically one species? There's all there's there's like 20, 30, there's dozens of cultivated varieties, but how can this one species be used for everything? It must be, it's like ginseng. It's like the panacea of the Amazon. It must be just, you know, just all in their head. It's all, it's all, uh, it's all magic. It's a magical mm -hmm. plant. And then Timothy Plowman, the great Timothy Plowman, the great ethnobotanist, who also mm -hmm. did the pioneering work on Grunfelsia classification, mm -hmm. he teamed up with uh, Keith Clay. I think he's at, I think in Indiana, who's a specialist on, on, on plant endophytes. And what they discovered is that these cultivated sedges were loaded with ergot alkaloids. Hmm. So the Machiginga word for the plant, Ibenkiki, Benki means like a button, like a floral, like a button, like an un, Benki is like an un, you know, like a flower, a bud before, a, a floral bud before it opens, it's called Benki. And so Ibenkiki means the bud plant. And it's like a plant that's eternal in bud and never flowers. And in these cultivated sedges, the, the sedges have the sedges have this like a papyrus. They have this they have this stem, and then it divides into three leaflets. And there's a little white button at the tip of that leaflet, like a little white bud. 
and never flowers or very rarely flowers. And what that white bud is, it's actually fungus. And so what happens is these plants are, are, are they, have, they have a symbiotic relationship with this fungus. And in the wild, obviously the fungus is at low levels. Um, and, and like ranchers in Texas hate nutgrass. They, they mm. do everything they can to destroy nutgrass because the cattle, there's this thing called cattle staggers and, and all Texans, all cattle ranchers in the Southwest know about this stuff. When, when the cows eat too much nutgrass, the, these ergot fungi that are systemic in the plants get them high and they fall down, they break a leg, they drown mm. in the river, cattle staggers. And so they hate nutgrass. And so what the indigenous people of the Amazon did is they took advantage and, and apparently sedges that have a look that have these these fungal endophytes it, it acts as it's it kills other fungi and bacteria so it's like a it's like it's like a trade-off like the kind of stuff that that merlin writes about these these plant you know the plants will form into these relationships with fungal endophytes to protect themselves and in this case the machiginga well the, the indigenous peoples of the amazon generally they took advantage of this existing relationship between the, the sedge plants and the fungal endophytes and then using cultivation they cultivate them only through through uh, tubers so it's it's a cloning they clone them so the plant doesn't need to reproduce anymore because it doesn't need to create seeds and so they basically through selective breeding and cloning they've upped the concentrations of these fungal endophytes to the point where the plant can no longer flower and instead of having a flower the plant has a little white button like a like a little fungus is absolutely loaded with fungal endophytes and 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 the and this balancia belongs to a class of fungi called the claviceptaceae which is the same family of fungi from which lsd well, ergot rye ergot in the middle ages was this in, you know the, the rye flower would get infested with this fungus and people eat it they would have hallucinations they would they would they would get women would have spontaneous abortions they would have uh, it would cause people to get gangrene because it causes vasoconstriction and and like Rye ergot, the balancia, becomes a factory for produce. So it's not really the plant that the plant is just a vehicle for the ergot alkaloids that are being produced by the balancia fungus. And if you think about what are the physiological effects of ergot alkaloids, vasoconstriction, mm -hmm. green in excessive, but vasoconstriction for headaches, right? Mm. We're also following childbirth, right? If you have a hemorrhage, it can help save someone's life. Yeah. yeah. The ergot alkaloids can they, they cause uterine contractions and so so if you think about you know and, and you know ergot was used you know ergot in the middle ages it was it could cause abortions but it was also used in a controlled way by witches as an abortifacient right mm -hmm. and so so quote unquote witches i'm saying you know herbalists and so if you look at the uses of these plants you know headache snake bite um uh, wound healing vasoconstriction fertility control Mm -hmm. uterine contractions and then all of these other uses for being a hunter for going through the control po control points being a better singer calming down battling you know quarreling spouses these may have to do with the psychoactive component so what looks like this plethora of uses that could only be explained by superstition when when tim plowman and, and keith clay did the did the did the phytochemistry they realized these things were loaded with ergot and so suddenly you see those quote unquote superstitions in a new light as being these guys know what they're doing. They, they have yeah. manipulated, they have manipulated the fungal concentrations. You could, and they took one plant from Ecuador, it had eight novel ergot alkaloids. So you could imagine that each 
cultivated variety has a unique cocktail of ergot alkaloids that have these different effects that they claim they have. That's amazing. I mean, I think it also speaks to the advanced um, scientific technologies that indigenous people have when it comes to, you know, this is not a random chance no. thing. This is, this is, this is like, basically you have an experimental field site where you are growing, you are cultivating, um, you know, microbiota within a plant host. I mean, it, it just shows how, how clearly advanced medicine um, has been for a very long time in the Amazon and continues to develop as traditional ecological knowledge transforms, but also, you know, these, these very selective ways of, of cultivating medicinal species. It, it's fascinating. Yeah. But it happens in a context in which, I mean, the interesting thing is that Amazonian peoples, they have this very sophisticated knowledge of, mm -hmm. you know, all the, you know, even ayahuasca itself is a, is a, ayahuasca isn't one plant, it's two plants that you mix it, you know, one plant inhibits the enzyme in the brain that breaks down the other component. I mean, it's really sophisticated mm -hmm. knowledge, but that sophisticated knowledge doesn't leave them to hubris. And, and you know, Western society, yeah. it has to do with this cosmology, like, you know, God created the, God created man in his own image and heaven and earth and all the creatures are, are man's, humankind's, you know, there to be exploited by humans, go forth and multiply. And it gives Western, you know, Western science, this element of hubris, whereas mm. indigenous peoples, um, they come from this cosmology where everything is human. And so when you, when you're hunting an animal, you're basically killing another person. It's not homicide, but it's almost homicide. And because of that, that other person, like a human is going to want to take revenge. And so when you kill a monkey, that monkey thinks you're a jaguar and wants to take revenge. It's, it, the monkey the the fam the family of that monkey wants to take revenge on the hunter on the jaguar mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. so there's an idea that that everything is reciprocal so so humans aren't these master isn't the master race that's out to like dominate the planet humans the natural world isn't a natural world the natural world is a social world in which other beings other human like beings who are powerful and dangerous and have their own mm -hmm. Their own weapons and their own medicines and their own witchcraft that they can they can get back at you. And so, rather than having this attitude of hubris in the way they use plants, they recognize that the plants come from the the the, the plant knowledge comes from someplace else. And 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 in the case of the Machiganga, the plants actually come from the forest spirits. They actually going back to the uses of of, of psychoactive plants. The Machiganga say that after a while, these sedge varieties. If you keep using the same varieties, they lose their vigor and they sort of die out. And it's mm -hmm. the shamans who go into the forest taking psychoactive plants to these specific places in the forest where they go and they get new varieties of sedges, new varieties of crops. So the idea is that they're they're constantly having to replenish their knowledge by contact with the forest spirits. And so it 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 puts this knowledge, this sophisticated knowledge, within a context of more of more. Um, reciprocal relationships with the other beings. The idea is that we share this forest with other beings and we depend on these other beings to give us knowledge and some of those other beings can attack us. And so we, you need to sort of maintain a harmonious relationship with the other beings rather than this sort of hubris idea of Western technology. Oh, we're the pinnacle of evolution and we can do whatever we want with the planet. Yeah, well, that's such a that's such an insightful point. It, it's, it's a whole other worldview, as you say. And we're running a little bit low on time, so I want to get to 
this last topic before we go, because I think that a lot of our listeners will be eager to learn more about this. I know that you work as a museum curator um, at the Geldy Museum. Can you tell us a little bit about that and your recent collaboration with the American Museum of Natural History in New York and your upcoming virtual reality exhibit called Forest of the Senses, which I am very eager um, to sense this <laughs> virtual reality exhibit. Right, right. Yeah, so I work in the Geldy Museum, which is sort of like, it's sort of like the Smithsonian of Brazil. It was founded in the 1860s. It's the oldest, it's the it's the second oldest scientific institution in Brazil, the oldest scientific institution in the Amazon. And um, and it was it was founded in the 1860s. Um, and one of the first directors was Emilio Geldi, who was a, a Swiss um, Swiss biologist. And so it, it's this museum that has this very old um, tradition of multidisciplinary collaboration. Um, there's anthropology, there's archaeology, there's linguistics, there's biology, there's um, paleontology, all under one roof, like 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 Smithsonian. And it's um, in Brazil. It's a very you know most of the most of the anthropological research takes place in anthropology departments, which are very segmented. Anthropologists don't speak with archaeologists, don't speak with linguists. Whereas the Gelder Museum has this really wonderful environment of cross-disciplinary collaboration, and um, and uh, and the Gelder Museum um, has a very important linguistics department. Um, well, in the anthropology department, Kurt Nimundaju, this famous, um, almost legendary uh, German ethnologist, migrated to Brazil, became became a Brazilian citizen in the 1920s. And he ran the ethnology collections, and he's one of the great. Uh, he, he, you know, he corresponded with Levi Strauss. He's a, mm. and he was he was the curator of the ethnology collections in in in, in the Geldi. So he's there's this very long tradition of collections, collecting ethnographic objects, linguistic documentation. Nimundaju um, has a very important map of the the ethnolinguistic map that sort of documents the language, the indigenous languages of Brazil. And so the linguistics program in Geldi has a long tradition. And and they're they're very much involved. You know, a lot of linguistics is very theoretical, sort of Chomskyan linguistics, sort of high level linguistics. And the Gelty linguistics department is all about documenting endangered languages and training indigenous peoples how to document their own languages using, you know, more and more digital technologies. And so we have a we have a whole group of of, um, of technicians who were who have had experience in training indigenous peoples how to use. Um, video, video and audio to document languages. And um, when I first got to the museum in 2009, a group of Kayapo leaders showed up to visit the museum. And they, they were visiting with a, a French colleague of mine um, who brought them to the museum to visit um, Pascal de Robert. And they said, we love visiting the museum. We want to come back. Um, but we, we want to come back with cameras next time. Can you write a project and get money so that we can come back to the museum with cameras? And I said, Sure, why not? You know, I'll give it a try. And we got some funding and 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 trained a bunch of young Kayapo filmmakers um, so that they could document the 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 you know only they said only a few of us, only three or four can visit at a time, but want to show these films back in the village. So they came and they filmed the the collections. There's these really old, there's these collections made in the 19, 1905 with this Kayapo sort of a, a subgroup of the Kayapo. A, a specific tribe that was that was extinguished that no, no longer exists, um, you know, physically, demographically, they were extinguished, but they still have a reputation as being these fierce warriors. And they were really interested in seeing these old artifacts by this sort of legendary warrior tribe. And and they filmed it, but they they said, but you know, um, 
you know, we Kayapo, we make all that stuff that you, we have all that stuff in our villages. We haven't forgotten how to do this stuff. So it's important for us to film these old objects in here, but it's just as important for us to film our rituals in the villages. So you can see that we haven't, we haven't forgotten any of that stuff. We know all how to make all that stuff. And so what started out as a museum documentation project turned into this cultural revitalization project where the Kayapo asked us for cameras and they started making these amazing films. And so like, okay, well, let's teach you how to make films. And I've taught filmmaking before. I've made films, you know, with Discovery Channel and, uh, and I've taught filmmaking at Berkeley. And so I said, I'll, I'll teach these Kayapo that I make films. So I sent them out to the field, brought them with the material. And I was gonna say, okay, you guys make your films. It's a technique I use in training. You, you, you get the students to make films and then they can't cut it together because they don't know how to, they don't know how to shoot. And so they don't know how to edit. So I said, I'll, I'll show, it's like a way of showing you how to make films. The Kaipo came with these amazing films that were just like, mm -hmm. I don't teach you guys anything. You guys know exactly what you're doing. So I said, just keep doing what you're doing. And so they've been making these wonderful films, immersive sort of, um, because they know what's going on in the ritual. When you watch the film, you don't understand what's going on, but you know the person who filmed it knows what's going on. So it gives you this really intimate sense of the ritual. And when I'm filming, like, no, no, over here, like, I don't know what's going on. They say, no, you're missing it. The, mo the most important thing is here. So they're much better filmmakers than I am for their own rituals. And so this project went on and uh, I started collaborating with Richard Pace from Middle Tennessee University. And we started looking at the at how these sort of, people think of, oh, it's the, the old Gary Larson cartoon. Oh, anthropologists, hide your, hide your VCRs, you know. It's as if when, when indigenous people have digital technology, they're not really indigenous anymore. They lose their culture through indigenous technology, uh, through digital technology. And what we found is that with the Kayapo, at least, by having cameras and making films, they were reinforcing their own technology. I mean, this technology is a way of them reinforcing their culture. And, and um, it, it's almost as though they were capturing the cameras, like the way they would capture war clubs from enemy tribes or capture shotguns from white people. They were capturing the video cameras from white people to use that as a weapon to defend their culture. So far from the cameras and the television and videotape destroying their culture, it became a way of reinforcing their culture. And so I, was, I spent the first six months of last year in the American Museum of Natural History doing an exhibit on this precisely this topic. There's a famous um, Kayapo, when you go into the the, the American Museum of Natural History, the South American wing, there's this famous mannequin of a Kayapo warrior standing with this war club and this fierce looking Kayapo warrior. And so we created a uh, sort of a dialogue with that showcase of showing a Kayapo warrior rather with a war club, he's holding a camera on his shoulder and filming us. So the, the idea is it's a Kayapo warrior filming us. We are the, we are the film. And, you know, we were planning to do this as a physical exhibit case with actual you know, it's actually got, it's actually a camera that has been in the field with the Kayapo for three years making films. So it's got like mm -hmm. scratched up and dusty. So it's, it's actually a Kayapo ethnographic object. It's not just any old camera. It's, it's a Kayapo camera and beads. And we, we sort of deck this guy out with a, with headdress and, 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 and beadwork and, 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 and a traditional necklace holding this camera, making us think about indigenous peoples surviving in the modern world. And, you know, halfway through the, you know, May, coronavirus hit, we had to shut the whole, well, we had to postpone the exhibit case and we turned it into an online exhibit, which is now available through Columbia University um, on their archeology span website. It's called, it's called the, the Camera is Our Weapon. And it tells the story of Kaipo filmmakers and how they've used um, digital technology as a way of reinforcing their culture. And through that experience of doing an online um, 
exhibit, I also got funding from an institute in Brazil called the Serpilera Institute. And the original idea was to do to do this year, to do an exhibit where you would go through the you would go through the the Gelby Museum has like a huge like it's like eight city blocks of rainforest in the middle of the city. It's kind of like a mini central park of rainforest, not as big as central, but it's like it's like a mini central park where you can walk through it and see, you know, animals, some of them in their natural habitats and plants. And the idea was to do uh, 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 an exhibit where you would walk through this, I mean, not an exhibit, a, a standing forest, and you would be guided through how indigenous peoples sense using taste, smell, texture to understand the medicinal and spiritual qualities of plants. Um, but we had to turn it because of COVID, we had to, we couldn't have a in-person exhibit. So we were in the process of transforming this into a virtual exhibit where it would be a virtual tour of the, of the grounds. And there's going to be a spirit being the, the, uh, the Saba, the, um, the, uh, the Saba pentander, this huge tree is a, mm. is a powerful spiritual tree for the people of Peru and Brazil. It's like the mother of the forest. It's the portal that opens the ways to the spirit world. And so the Saba spirit is going to be the guide through this sort of virtual reality tour of the different plants in the forest. And the idea is to show, um, show what are the invisible components of these plants that make them healing plants? What are the chemical sensory components and what are the scientific? So the idea is to create a dialogue between the, the sensory experience of the visitor the scientific knowledge about the plant, and then the the the, the, the spiritual dimension. So that the person comes out of this exhibit with an understanding, a more deep understanding of indigenous knowledge, and and, and the idea is to do a virtual reality tour through through this. So we're calling it the sensitive, the, the the forest of the sensitive senses. We're in the middle of creating this right now. It's a VR experience. That's amazing. Wow, you you're doing so many fascinating things, Glenn, and this has given me a lot to think about. Um, you got to come to Brazil someday. Hey, I would love to. I would love to. I mean, there's there's so much to explore, and I'd love to see the museum. I mean, it's it's just a such a, a landmark of of you know so much history there. Well, that's great. Well, I think that's all the time we have today on the show. It was so great speaking with you, and thank you for sharing these fascinating stories about you know life in in these other worlds that some of us have never really thought about, right? Um, and the links between medicine and spirituality and song and culture and aging, the birth, life, death cycle. It, it's a lot, and it's its fascinating. Well, so, I hope we can be in person sometime soon. Yeah, me too. Everyone that's listening, make sure you get your vaccine if it's available to you. <laughs> so we can get, Just yeah. today. That's great. That's so. great. Oh, and, and tell tell listeners they can check out my my um, my my blog. I don't have a podcast. Yes. I'm behind the I'm behind the times. You're ahead of the times. But I have a, I do have an old fashioned blog called Notes from the Ethnoground. Ethnoground as an E T H N O ground ethnoground.blogspot.com where I write about these experiences and there's a lot of photographs. It's amazing. Some poems. Well, thank, yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Glenn. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded here on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find this episode and all of our other past episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also check this out in the video format on my um, YouTube channel, which is Teach Ethnobotany. 
huge shout out to our show's producers to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth from Co-Conspiracy Entertainment and thanks so much to you all the listeners for staying tuned in with us today stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time